For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, exploring Tucson, where almost every street has a name and every name has a story. How the passages of the Arizona Trail inspired one man to craft poetry. A conversation with Tom Bailey about his hits with Thompson Twins and his new music with Galactic Perspective. And some Saddlebrook residents tell about the books they love best from the Great American Read. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Streets have names so we know where we're going. They also provide a way to honor people and events from the past. Next, David Layton, the writer of the Arizona Daily Star's Street Smarts column, shares the stories behind some of Tucson's most recognizable street names. And, spoiler warning, they're not always the ones you've heard before. Do you know where the name Speedway came from? No. Actually, I don't think I do. Because it's a drag strip? People would uh, race up and down that street. Late 70s, early 80s in high school, that was a place where people would go racing, speed racing. So I believe that's where it, it got its name, Speedway. Well, surprisingly, Speedway Boulevard, which most people think comes from the fact that people used to race cars there, which they did, actually derives its name from the Harlem River Speedway. A guy named George Kitt, who had just returned from New York City and who had attended a race, suggested the name Speedway because at that point, people were racing horses down that alignment. You gotta remember that Speedway Boulevard was very far from the center of town. The center of town at that point was downtown, so it was a pretty safe place to race horses. Ah, so it was a speed racing place, it just wasn't for cars. I wasn't there for the horse racing. <laughs> Tucson's got a great history, and I fell in love with history growing up here in Tucson. And I was always curious about you know, who these streets were named after. So I, you know, I took this up many years ago and uh, wrote for the Arizona Daily Star in my Street Smarts column. The Grant Road, I don't know. I'm not sure. Probably the guy from the general. I'd guess some fool named it after President Grant, but I don't know. You know, that's a common misconception by many Tucsonans is that Grant Road is named for Ulysses S. Grant, the famous Union general. But in fact, it's named for a local homesteader who worked for the Southern Pacific Railroad for many years. This was the property or the homestead of John Breck Ranch, about 80 acres, which was sometimes referred to as Grant Ranch. One of the things that I learned from his grandchildren is that he was a very hard worker. He was very dedicated to the Southern Pacific Railroad. I mean, he actually worked there from the late 1890s up until 1930. Tucson was at one point the northernmost point of the Spanish Empire, founded in the 1770s. Originally, all the streets in Tucson were in Spanish. There were streets like Calle de la Alegría, or Happiness Street, which is now Congress Street, or Calle del Arroyo, which is now Pennington Street. During the early 1870s, they surveyed and renamed the streets, but at that point, all the street names switched over to English. Kennedy? Well, everybody would assume President Kennedy. Uh, the president? 
Well, that would be the president, I hope. No! Oh, my! Streets like Cushing and Simpson and Kennedy are all named after citizens of Tucson that were killed by Apaches as well as Jackson Street. Pennington Street, which was named for the Pennington family. Many of the family members, including the father and many of her brothers, were killed by Apaches. Stone Avenue is named for John F. Stone, who was a prominent Tucson citizen. He owned the Apache Pass Mining Company, and he was the first person to build a home on a dirt path that became Stone Avenue, named for him after his death. Park, I'm not sure, Park Avenue, Monopoly? <laughs> park, no, I don't. Well, there must have been a park nearby. I'm going to guess that there's a park near there. Well, what makes Park Avenue in Tucson unique is because it actually derives its name from the Union Park racetrack. So in 1893, a group of Tucsonans uh, came together to create a field or a track for people to play baseball games at, uh, do horse race tracking and bicycle racing as well. There was also gun shoots and skeet shoots in the area as well. So the park was in existence from about uh, 1893 to about 1908. Even though it was for a short period, it was a very prestigious place to go to. And it was a very important part of Tucson life at that point. What about Broadway? Well, that's kind of a city common street name. I don't know that it had an, what the origin. Broadway, I believe, is maybe because of the movies. Just a wild guess. The street we now call Broadway Boulevard was originally called Camp Street. It was named in the early 1870s, and it was named for Camp Lowell. Fred Ronstadt, the patriarch of the rather large Ronstadt family in Tucson, had a wagon shop and hardware store uh, located on present-day Scott Avenue in the old Camp Street. A hardware salesman who came in from New York City came to Tucson to sell Fred Ronstadt some hardware supplies. Tucson, of course, at that point was all dirt roads. It was mostly adobe, and they were looking at this little sun-baked town, and the uh, New York salesperson told Fred Ronstadt, what you need here is some of the hustle and bustle of New York City. Now, a few months later, that same salesman returned with a borrowed sign, as they say. Mr. Ronstadt thought it was a great idea, and he posted it on his wagon shop. And by about the early 1900s, people started calling it Broadway. So it is actually named for the Broadway Boulevard in New York City, based on a sign that was borrowed from New York City. That story was produced by Andrew Brown and edited by Nate Huffman. You can find the version that aired on Arizona Illustrated at azpm.org. The names of local landmarks also play a part in this next story. 2018 marks the 50th anniversary of the U.S. National Trail System. The Arizona Trail spans more than 800 miles, from the border with Mexico to the Utah state line, and it's inspired many to undertake an impressive journey. Green Valley resident Stephen Chaffee has hiked it twice in 2011 and 2015, and earlier this year he completed a book called The Arizona Trail, Passages in Poetry. Tony Paniagua has the interview. 
Stephen Shafi, let's begin with how you heard about the Arizona Trail and why did you decide to undertake this gigantic journey across the state? Yeah, I heard that there was going to be a work event up near Colossal Cave, uh, REI and, and the Arizona Trail Association. They were holding this event. So I went, I met a fellow that actually is one of the stewards on the trail, and he got me interested in volunteering. And from there, I volunteered some, and then decided, yeah, I'd, l- I'd like to try and hike the Arizona Trail. And somebody encouraged you to try to do it because you were saying you weren't too sure about whether yeah, you should uh, do this. Uh, a lady named Serena Defoe. Uh, she had hiked it once before, and she's the one I actually made the comment to about uh, not, I'm 62 years old. And she said, no, nah, you can do it. So I did. And you did it twice. You went up part of the way and then came back for your car. Can you tell us a little bit about that plan? Yeah, exactly. I was going to do this entire hike solo, unassisted. And so the way I wanted to do it was to maybe hike a day or two out one direction from my truck and then hike back to my truck and go home. And I did that pretty much for the entire trip. You know, sometimes it was just one day, sometimes two days, sometimes three days out one direction and then always back to my vehicle. And um, it was it was a great way to do it because it really helped uh, in uh, the writing of the poetry that I wanted to. That was my other objective besides hiking 800 miles. You are a retired National Park Ranger. Did that make it easier for you, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think in some respects. I, I had a lot of uh, previous hiking experience, primarily up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, but also back east. And, you know, I, I felt totally comfortable hiking solo. Always have. That's the way I like to do it. And when did the poetry come into your life? The poetry, uh, uh, the first poem I ever wrote was a, a love poem to my girlfriend in high school, but uh, there were a lot of years where I didn't write any poetry at all. It wasn't, wasn't until I retired that I had the time to really put into it. So you did 43 passages. That's how many passages the Arizona Trail has, right? Exactly. The 800 miles is divided up into 43 named passages, each with its own name. And so I decided... I'll use the title of those passages for the title of my poems. Worked out great. I'd like to uh, read the first poem that I wrote for this book. It's about a passage that I'm a, a, a steward for. And it's, uh, this passage is along the northeast uh, slope of the Santa Rita Mountains. It's called Las Colinas. These hills turn an old story. Mount Fagan witnesses a naturalist point a miner's counterpoint, our water, our desert, our recreation, our jobs, our homes, our industries, today's classic conservation conundrum. The trail skirts Rosemont Junction through storm-laden washes, rolling hills in Schofield Canyon. Horseback riders, hikers, hunters, runners, mountain bikers traverse this wild land. A path meanders around man-eating-sized prickly pear, house-high ocotillo, mesquite, birds, lizards, snakes, and occasional deer. But for how long? When we were speaking ahead of this interview, you say that you wanted to focus on history, your personal experiences, and the environment. Right. One of the historical aspects that you mentioned is about a man who moved to Arizona, and then all of a sudden he had a whole bunch of places named after him. Yeah, it's Superstition Wilderness. This is actually one of two poems for that passage. Eliza Rivas didn't complain much, left wife and daughter in California, staked his claim in superstition solitude on self-reliance, 
a living maid and apples and spuds sold to Pinnell miners. Eliza died along the trail, gave us Rivas Ranch, Rivas Valley, Rivas Gap, Rivas Saddle, Rivas Creek, Rivas Canyon. Not bad for a produce man, beats a park bench. When was he around in our state? This is back in the early 1900s. So you learned about a lot of different places and people along the way, right? Yeah, I, I did some research, uh, light research, um, as I was hiking uh, different passages. And there are other people in my book that I talk about. Up in the San Francisco peaks, I was actually taking a break, and I saw this um, thin black fellow run by me up the trail. And I didn't say hello to him. He didn't look at me. And then shortly after that, a, a woman came by, and I asked her about it. She knew this guy. She said, yeah, he's from Ethiopia. He goes to school at Northern Arizona University. He's a, a runner, and he's training for the Olympics. I said, wow. And he was just quiet as a deer when he was running. Uh, anyway, it, it struck me as interesting. Stephen, what do you hope people take from this book of poetry? I hope the book serve as a little bit of inspiration to get people's uh, interest uh, up uh, to, to actually hike uh, the trail or uh, mountain bike it or uh, do it on horseback. It's trails maintained for those three, uh, three uses. So uh, I just hope it inspires some people to get out and enjoy uh, some of Arizona's wildlands. Uh, the Arizona Trail is a great place to start. Any suggestions to somebody who might be a little bit nervous, apprehensive about trying to undertake yeah. Any hike, uh, let alone the Arizona Trail. Well, you know, I, I really uh, think that research is a really important thing. And, and the Arizona Trail has a great guidebook that uh, Matt Nelson and others put together and answers a lot of questions. Um, and we have a great website, aztrail.org. You can get a wealth of information from that, from that website. And there are a lot of uh, volunteers with the organization that are out there to uh, help uh, people that are interested uh, we have trail angels that'll spot water for people or drive them to a trailhead. So there's a lot of help out there. You just have to research it out. Stephen Shaffey, author of the Arizona Trail Passages and Poetry. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Moving forward, Stephen Chaffee says he's going to stay closer to his wife and home, so he plans to do most of his hiking in the Santa Rita Mountains east of Green Valley, and he's thinking about writing a second book of poetry. By the way, a celebration is planned for the Arizona National Scenic Trail on Saturday, October 6th. Pedestrians, bikers, and equestrians will join forces to collectively complete the 800-mile path in just one day. We have a link with information at azpm.org. Back in 1977, Tom Bailey's pull towards exploring the new technology of the synthesizer served him well. He became the primary songwriter and singer for Thompson Twins, a trio that embodied many ideals of the New Wave movement. Their multicultural look was perfect for the budding MTV generation, and a string of hit records followed. After Thompson Twins split up in 1991, Bailey followed his muse into projects as diverse as soundtracks, Indian dub, and a project drawing its inspiration from astronomical data. Tom Bailey's latest tour finds him returning to the music that made him famous, and he's playing the Fox Tucson Theater on October 5th. I'm in Toronto, I think, yeah. <laughs> Just checking there. <laughs> if it's Monday, it must be Toronto. <laughs> yes, it's got a bit like that, I'm afraid. We recently went back to the UK just to do one show and then turned right around again and came 
back to Canada. So um, my head is spinning, to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say we, who are you uh, referring to right now? Who are you on tour with? Well, with my own band and crew. And, of course, um, we're doing a lot of shows with Culture Club and the B-52s. I'm not quite sure how to word this, Tom, but I wonder, when you guys get together, do you talk about the 80s? Um, well, inevitably, because, <laughs> because a lot of what we do is rooted in what happened then. But, you know, you can't hold time back either. I mean, things move on, progress happens, things change. And since the 80s, I've been doing lots of things that, you know, perhaps people wouldn't expect me to do musically. So I look back at it and relate to it very strongly as a bit of a golden age, not only for myself, because obviously that's when we had a lot of success with the Thompson Twins, but also for um, pop music and contemporary music in general, because obviously there were lots of things going on there, but I would kind of focus in on the technological changes of the time, like, you know, synthesizers and drum machines becoming very available cost-wise to people like me, and suddenly we could make music with computers that we, you know, it was just beyond us to do that before. And other things like MTV coming online, which changed the way that people consumed music. They sat there watching it rather than listening to it. Yeah, that's um, right. So it's those kind of things that are kind of firmly embedded in my sense of the 80s being a little bit of a golden age that we never quite, um, we never quite recovered from in a way, my generation. Do you have a primary memory that you can share with us of the first time you came to the States? Something that maybe has stayed with you and given context to the American experience for you since then? Well, the first time I came to the States was before I came as a as a professional musician. I, I just came over to visit New York. And while I was in the air, um, John Lennon got shot. So that's my profound memory of that. Um, kind of strange uh, thing thing to have happened on my first visit to New York. My first visit as a touring musician, we we came um, not really knowing what we were getting into. We knew that we had some response to our recordings in dance clubs, which I think had grown out of kind of new wave clubs. You know how sometimes dance clubs are just kind of discos, the things that people go to on a Saturday night to let off some steam. But at other times they become this kind of focus for new ideas. And so the interesting kids go down there, they hang out, they dress uh, to impress, and their ideas become fascinating to each other. When, and when that, you know, it becomes a kind of marketplace for what's shaking, what's, what's new and, and happening. And um, I, th- I think we just were really lucky to catch America at a time when, when clubs were like that. I felt like an early adopter of your music, at least on, on this side of the Atlantic, because uh, I got Sidekicks, and I found it to be a really fun and curious album of tunes like Watching and uh, We Are Detective. I was trying to figure out where you guys were coming from and where that humor and that ele- those elements of your music came from. What I finally have settled on is the idea that as opposed to some bands that try to create big, you know, uh, everybody dance now moments or kind of rock anthems, Thompson Twins music was actually coming from a very personal place. It's almost like your music was coming from the inside out. Well, that's an interesting observation. But I mean, while you were saying that, I was thinking that, you know, one explanation might be that we were a totally non-standard group anyway. I mean, the, the standard 
uh, iconography of um, a rock group is four guys standing there with you know drums, bass, guitar, and vocals. We were three for a start. We were not all men. We were not all white or all black, you know. So the, the, there was a kind of challenge to the iconography of what it meant to be a pop group, and also that meant that you know. Meanwhile, back in the recording studio, if you like, there was a certain tension between where we were coming from. We hadn't all just grown up um, at school together, you know. We, we we came from very very different backgrounds with di- different axes to grind and different ideas to express, and so there was always a kind of um, tension within the band who whose ideas get pushed forward how do we make it interesting um, we want to accept anything that's uh, kind of ordinary you know we, we set high um, standards for each other in terms of all of that I mean I have to say I was the main musician in the three-piece Thompson Twins but I was very lucky that I had two people who weren't just going to accept more of the same you know they wanted they wanted very very high standards from me Tell us about a song that you're playing now that your relationship to has changed in some profound way. Something that once you revisited it, you found a, a different old friend than the well, one you, you know, thought. Well, you know, it happens all the time. <laughs> like, uh, decades after I've written a song, I find myself on a stage singing it and going, oh my gosh, <laughs> now I know what this line is about. I mean, to take a very crude and obvious example... Lies, which was you know our, our breakthrough video hit from Sidekicks album all those years ago. When I sing that now, you know it becomes totally about the the, the contemporary political situation, both here and in the UK. So I sing it from that perspective, uh, and from a way which we, um, we've all, especially the media, but the people who consume that, we've all become complicit in this weird kind of mangling of the truth, you know, where we don't really know what's going on anymore. And um, I can't say that we wrote lies with some kind of prescient knowledge of what was going to be happening (laughs) 35 years later or something. But um, in in that sense, it's probably, you know, it has a claim to being more eternal than that. But I certainly sing it from that perspective every night. Lies, 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 yeah. I think you made a great case for why you've returned to pop. Tell us a little about science fiction. What did you want to say, and how did you know when you had an album ready to go there? I mean, I just felt that it was a necessary thing to do, to have some kind of contemporary um, creative challenge for me alongside the nostalgia, basically, of singing old songs, you know, which, which I was thoroughly enjoying, but there seemed to be that element missing. So naturally enough, I could think, okay... I never really agreed to do this, but why the hell not? So I start writing, and three or four songs in, I hit the idea of a song called Science Fiction, which is actually, on the face of it, it's about, I, I sing it from the point of view of someone whose partner is so engrossed in you know, the science fiction that you just can't get their attention. You know? I'm so, so I'm jealous of someone's interest in, in some aspects of art or literature or whatever. And I thought that was an amusing kind of setup for a song. Of course, structurally, its metaphors go further than that because it's about how we prefer fantasy to fact sometimes. You know? And <laughs> that also was a kind, of a, more, a kind of profound idea to grapple with. But it was at that point that I realized, you know what, quite a lot of the lyrics I'm writing are about gazing out to the cosmos, out to the night sky, looking up at the stars. And 
and using that as a kind of lever to better understand what's taking place back on planet Earth, you know. And then suddenly I thought, that's it. I have the concept for the album. That's the thing that will carry me all the way home. Um, that's how science fiction got its name as an album and how most of the songs fit into that kind of category. The game of love is written in a book. Tom Bailey and his new band will perform at the Fox Tucson Theater on Friday, October 5th. Throughout the summer, PBS has been inviting people of all ages to make time to read and vote online on the book they feel deserves to be called America's Best Love Novel. The Great American Read offers a list of 100 titles, chosen by a panel of literary experts and a poll of more than 7,000 readers. On September 11th, AZPM hosted an event in Saddlebrook, and I talked to some of the people there about the books they love. I am Diana. I live here in Saddlebrook, but I've lived many places over my life. I mean, there's many, many, but um, I liked Anne of Green Gables when I was growing up, and it's still a great book for, for anybody. And I've written The Martian was a great, terrific, you know, recent one that it was so inventive and everything. It made you feel like he was right there and it was all happening. But there's just so many good ones on here. Well, I, that, those are two really interesting uh, books that you cited, and I wonder if there isn't some sort of connection between them. Can you think of anything that Anne of Green Gables and The Martian have in common? Well, they were in completely different environments than they were used to, <laughs> both, both of them. But they, all, they both did well. They prospered. They did. They did. My name is Bill Carter. And Bill, tell me about a book on the list that stands out to you. Well, there's a few on here that I've read. Uh, I like all of the uh, Dan Brown books, the uh, Da Vinci Code and uh, that whole series. Also, uh, the Tom Clancy books. I've read almost like every one of those. That's kind of where my interests lie. Well, there were a couple that I really enjoyed when I read them years ago. One was Atlas Shrugged. That was, like, mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah? In, I, in what sense? What it, why, why did it boggle your mind? The idea that someone could just drop out of society because of all the regulations and all of the politics and the way the country just reversed itself to, to the 1800s, so to speak, it was just amazing to me. Some of those people were very brave. That was Mary Lou Worthy with The Last Word. You can get a copy of the 100 book list at azpm.org. How many have you read? To vote for your favorites, check out The Great American Read at pbs.org. New episodes are airing every Friday at 9 p.m. on PBS 6. The big reveal of the voting results happens in late October. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.